Greetings to the brightest audience in the country and welcome to the Dominic Enyart Show. And this week, finally, we've been putting it off forever, but I finally want to get back to discussing the canon of the Bible. We did two shows talking about the canon of the Old Testament, and I would like to do another show or two, this time discussing the canon of the New Testament. And if you want to find those past shows, go to our website, kgov.com slash canon, or you could check out today's show summary. That's kgov.com. Today is June 21st, 2022, and you'll see links to those shows. And we talked about how the books of the Old Testament came about very organically. The entire nation of Israel They accepted the writings of the inspired books, and there really wasn't a lot of debate for the Old Testament. There wasn't any, like, hooded figures conducting councils and dark dungeons, you know, with big old white beards, uh, trying to decide what books should be included and which books they didn't like. And it wasn't like that at all. Rather, God would inspire writing, and it would be universally adopted, right? Like, Moses was the... He was the leader of Israel, and he he wrote down uh, what God wanted him to write down, and then the nation of Israel accepted it, and there wasn't much debate. And then we saw both from Jesus' words himself and various extra-biblical sources, like the historian Josephus, that the canon of the Old Testament was very solid, very firm at Jesus' time, and further that we have the same Old Testament today that we had at Jesus' time. And so if, you know, if it's good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for us. But now here comes the tricky part, the New Testament. And so the New Testament, it consists of 27 books, and they were written roughly between 45 AD and 95 AD. And with Galatians, Galatians was most likely the first book that was written. Galatian comes ninth in the New Testament, and you know that's when you're reading cover to cover, it appears ninth, but it seems to be the oldest book in the New Testament. There's a little bit of debate, but it seems Galatians is the oldest, and that was written by Paul, the Apostle Paul, the Apostle to the Gentiles, and Paul wrote more books in the Old Testament than any other author. And Paul is kind of like Moses in that sense. Moses wrote more books of the Old Testament than anyone else, and Paul wrote more books of the New Testament than anyone else. And that's very fitting because Moses, he was the lawgiver. He had a lot to write about the law. And then Paul, being the one who ushered in grace, he had a lot to write about grace. And some authors of the New Testament, they would dictate the contents of a letter or a narrative to an assistant or, you know, a scribe. And that assistant, he would write down what was spoken, and then the author might double-check the uh, the writings for accuracy, and then the letter would be shipped off to, you know, various churches or individuals. And now some authors of the New Testament, they wrote their own letters by hand, or, you know, they signed like a greeting or a salutations. Uh, Paul definitely wrote some by hand. We see in Galatians uh, 6 
that Paul, he actually talks about his own penmanship in verse 11. See with what large letters I have written to you with my own hand. Well, that's that's pretty neat. In Colossians 4.18, the salutation by my own hand, Paul. And then in 2 Thessalonians, we see the salutation of Paul with my own hand, which is a sign in every epistle, so I write. So that's that's interesting. That's neat. And these books of the New Testament, they were written on leather scrolls and papyrus sheets. And papyrus, that's that's a plant. That's actually where we get our English word paper. It comes from papyrus. And you know, it's it's a plant and the plant the plant grows in the marshy area, mainly near the Nile River. And, you know, often the writers of various letters, they wished that they could have seen the people that they were writing to. Uh, They wished they could have seen them directly face to face. But since they weren't able, they opted to write these letters instead. And now these various letters and epistles. By the way, as a young kid, people always threw around, around that word epistle, and I was so confused. I was like, what is an epistle? Can I blow into it? <laughs> but no, an epistle is just another word for a letter. It's a fancy word for a letter. You know, you write a letter, put it in the mail, send it to someone. An epistle is just a fancy word for a letter. And typically, a letter, uh, an epistle is a letter with a more serious subject matter than just, you know, writing to your pen pal or something. That's basically all it is, just a letter. Uh, But so these letters, they were circulated around. In fact, Paul even instructed his followers to circulate his letters. And we see in Colossians 4.16, let me read this here. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. So we see that these letters were circulated. And by the way, that verse, it mentions the epistle from Laodicea. And a lot of people in the historical critical school, which we mentioned during our past shows on the canon of the Bible, uh, they believe that was a lost writing of Paul. And they try and use this verse as an attack on the credibility of the Bible. And they say this was a lost writing of the Bible. But there isn't much proof for this. There aren't any first century historians that make mention of any such you know, uh, epistle. None among extra biblical writings. A much more likely explanation is that this letter from Laodicea was our book Ephesians. At the time Paul wrote Colossians, the epistle of to the Ephesians was circulating through the churches and was at the time in Laodicea. And this theory has uh, merit uh, since the letter to the Colossians and the letter to the Ephesians have great similarity and are both clearly Paul's work. And this letter from Laodicea, it was most likely in the hands of one of Paul's assistants, Tychicus. We see him in Colossians 4-7, and he most likely had the book of Ephesians, and he most likely had orders to send it to the Colossians. 
after the Latiosians had read it. But anyways, I'm getting off topic. That was just a fun little tangent I saw when preparing for this show. Uh, these letters were circulated, as shown in Colossians 4.16 there, and we're not sure if the actual, like, which one of the actual letters were circulated or if it was copy, copies of those various letters that were circulated, though it seems that one from Galatians where Paul, Paul talks about his big handwriting, at least that seems to have certainly, that original autograph seems that was circulated, but we're not completely sure about the other ones. And by the way, that word autograph, you'll hear Christians say, the original autographs were inspired by God and the original autographs were infallible. What they mean by that is that when the original writings were made, like right when they were, you know, pen meets paper, right when they were made the first time, they were inspired. But of course, um, they have been subject to, you know, copies and translations, and not all of the copies and translations were inspired. But for all intents and purposes, we have the Word of God and the Bible in its original autographs. It was infallible. And it's it's funny that a lot of atheists, they like to say that the Bible has been translated so many hundreds of times and copied and whatnot and whatnot and whatnot, that we cannot hope to have anything even resembling the original autographs. And this is not true. It's not true. For and, and there's two two good arguments against atheists when they say that. One, you know, they say it was translated from Greek to Latin to Spanish to Japanese to Dutch to English to Russian, et cetera, et cetera. And but that's not how we translate the Bible. If we were to translate the Bible, that would be foolish. But it's not how we translate the Bible. Rather we would translate the Bible Greek to Latin, Greek to Spanish, Greek to Japanese, Greek to Dutch, to English, to Russian, etc., etc., not through this various chain of translations. Our Bible isn't going through, you know, 50 different languages before it gets to us. It's going through one or two, maybe three, you know, worst case scenario. But, you know, let's say argument number two here. Let's say hypothetically, that the Bible did go through all those various translations to get to us, which it, it did not. But let's just pretend that it did. Even if it did, the Bible is a story that forms a narrative. It's not just a, a list of rules. And with stories, it's it's very difficult to mistranslate a story, right? You might get a word or two wrong when translating The Lord of the Rings, for example. Say you were to translate that to Spanish. You might get a word or two wrong, but no one who reads the Spanish translation is going to think that Aragorn is a bad guy trying to kill all the hobbits because of a few mistranslated words. That's just not going to happen. And we know this. We've seen examples of this. Uh, and for example, take the Wicked Bible. You may have heard of the Wicked Bible. And when they were translating the Ten Commandments, they accidentally omitted the word not in thou shalt not commit adultery. And so the Wicked Bible, it reads, thou shalt commit adultery. And not a single person who read the, the Wicked Bible, not a single person thought, oh, wow. I guess I got to go, go commit adultery now. Not a single person thought that. Every single person who read that 
knew it instantly that it was a mistake. And that's because the Bible is a narrative and you can understand the character of God if you understand the plot of the Bible. If you understand the story of the Bible, you will be able to tell if there is a dramatic mistranslation. By the way, you can order Bob Enyart. He was my father and predecessor. You can order his life's work, The Plot. That is his his book. It's it's a it's a literary treatise. It is Bob Enyart's life's work, The Plot. Understanding the plot of the Bible is the key to understanding its details. You can get that on our store, kgov.com/store. But anyways, I, I keep getting off topic. So there were letters or epistles, and the letters themselves or copies of the letters, they were circulating in the early church, and eventually the copies or the originals were uh, gathered into collections. And these collections, they represented, they'd be similar to a modern-day book right with like a bunch of pages and they were sewn together to make like a like a, a binding of sorts and you could imagine that was a lot easier to read than say like a scroll or uh, writing on leather you know a scroll you have to you know un- like unfurl it and you know find where you are and then re re-roll it back up but a paper you know paper in, in a book form that was a lot easier to read if you want to find you know a single reference or whatnot and those papyrus sheets that we mentioned earlier there was a big problem which was that if those papyrus sheets if they were rolled up say into a scroll the pages would crack and so putting them flat like in a book it sort of helped to preserve the writings for a little bit longer. And so they were all compiled into this collection or this, you know, codex, you might call it, which was called Tabiblia. That's what it was called, Tabiblia, which means the holy books. And Tabiblia is where we get our word, the Bible. Um, But this compilation being formed, it forced the question, you know, which which writings should we include in this compilation uh, that we will call the New Testament? Which which books should we include? As I said in the last shows, the Old Testament it was already you know firm. It was already you know they they felt like they had it all together, so that wasn't too much in question. But it was mainly the books of the New Testament that was in question. Which one of the new of these new writings are we going to include in the New Testament? And, you know, it's a, it's a pretty important question we're going to look at here now. Um, but before we do so, I want to play a clip from Jordan Peterson talking about the Bible. By the way, if you're not familiar with Jordan Peterson, he is pretty awesome. I first started following him and his work when he was an atheist evolutionist. And I believe he still is an evolutionist. I think he is a really sharp guy, which it's hard to get me, Dominic Enyart, to say that an evolutionist is a sharp guy. But Jordan Peterson is a sharp guy. And about a year ago, Bob Enyart, my father and predecessor, he played a clip on Bob Enyart Live about Jordan Peterson. And Peterson was talking about the Bible and he started crying in the clip that they, he was live on air and he started crying in the clip because Peterson, he said, you know, I could see 
the stories in the Bible. I've been studying them, and I can see them being true. I, I could see it. And if they are true, that would mean that would have so many implications, and that would be horrifying. If these stories in the Bible are true, that is horrifying because, you know, then uh, there's someone that you're being held accountable to. And then because it was scary, he started crying on air before composing himself. And so that was encouraging to see, you know, he's taking a step closer to Christianity. And so he was close back then. And, you know, he was he was just so smart. And I was thinking to myself, man, this guy, he's going to become a Christian. I know he is. He's, he thinks so logically. He, he's got to get there eventually. And then uh, just a few months back on his show, he prayed the Lord's Prayer on his show as the dramatic conclusion to a monologue. And so that uh, that obviously doesn't make you a Christian on its own. It's not saying any fancy words that makes you a Christian. But if he's not there already, he is he, he is close. And it seems now that he talks as if he was a Christian. And, you know, if you've been listening to my show, you know my standard is to give people the benefit of the doubt and assume that they are not saved. And that's because it's better to assume a Christian is not saved and witness to a Christian and annoy him by telling him what he already knows. It's better to do that than to assume an unbeliever is saved and not witness to that unbeliever and not tell that believer what he doesn't already know. You should err on the side of caution, give them the benefit of the doubt, and assume that they are not saved. But anyways, Jordan Peterson, he was talking about the Bible on Joe Rogan's podcast, and here's what he said, some really, really fascinating stuff. Let's hear this. Because the culture is a structure of category. Mm-hmm. That's what it is. Right. So, and in fact, culture is, a stra- culture is a structure of category that we all share. So we see things the same way. Well, that's why we can talk. I mean, not exactly the same way, because then we'd have nothing to talk about. But roughly speaking, we have a bedrock of agreement. Uh, that's the Bible, by the way. So I just walked through the Museum of the Bible in Washington. That was very cool. It's a very cool museum. So the structure, that's what the Bible Yeah, that's what provides. I figured out. I've been, I just figured this out this week. So it was a cool, it was a cool thing to walk through because it's... It's chronological. They have one floor, which is the history of the Bible. Mm. But it's not exactly that. It's really what it is, is the history of the book. Now, in many ways, the first book was the Bible. I mean, literally, because at one point there was only one book. Like, as far as our Western culture is concerned, there was one book. And for a while, literally, there was only one book. And that book was the Bible. And then before it was the Bible, it was, a, you know, it was scrolls and it was writings on papyrus, and, but it was, we were starting to aggregate written text together, and it went through all sorts of technological transformations, and then it became books that everybody could buy, the book everybody could buy, and the first one of those was the Bible, and then it became all sorts of books that everybody could buy. But all those books, in some sense, emerged out of that underlying book, and that book itself, the Bible isn't a book, it's a library. It's a collection of books. And so... What I figured out was partly because I was talking to my brother-in-law, Jim Keller. So in any case, we were talking about 
meaning in text because we were talking about translation and the problem of understanding text. And Jim said, the meaning of words is coded in the relationship of the words to one another. And the postmodernists make that case that all meaning is derived from the relationship between words. That's, that's wrong because, well, what about rage? That's not words. And what about moving your hand? That's not words. So it's wrong, mm -hmm. but, but part of it's right because the meaning we derive from the verbal domain is encoded in the relationship between words. So, so now then you think, well, let's think about the relationship between words. Well, some words are dependent on other words. Some ideas are dependent on other ideas. The more ideas are dependent on a given idea, the more fundamental that idea is. By de that's a definition of fundamental. So now imagine you have an aggregation of texts in a civilization. You say, which are the fundamental texts? And the answer is, the texts upon which most other texts depend. And so you'd put Shakespeare way in there in English because so many texts are dependent on Shakespeare's literary revelations. And Milton would be in that category, and Dante would be in that category, at least in translation. Fundamental authors, part of the Western canon, not because of the arbitrary dictates of power, but because those texts influenced more other texts. And then you think about that as a hierarchy, okay, with the Bible at its base which is certainly the case. Now imagine that's the entire corpus of, ling of linguistic production, all things considered. Now how do you understand that? Like literally, how do you understand that? The answer is you sample it by reading and listening to stories and listening to people talk. You sample that whole domain, you build a low resolution representation of that in your, inside you, and then you listen and see through that. And so it isn't that the Bible is true. It's that the Bible is the precondition for the manifestation of truth, which makes it way more true than just true. It's a whole different kind of true. And I think this is, I think this is not only literally the case, factually, I think it can't be any other way. Wow, that is so powerful. The Bible is the most fundamental book and not just is it true, but it is the precondition for the manifestation of the truth, which makes it way more true than just true. And there's an idea, which I believe it was Peterson who was also talking about this. It might have been in that same podcast episode. I'm not sure. But how under it was about how understanding reality is a very difficult task. It's very hard to understand all of reality and sorting facts from falsehoods. And even if you only have facts and you only have the truth and you don't have any falsehoods, it's still difficult to understand reali reality because there are so many billions and billions of facts and truths that are just, well, they're, they're pretty useless. Like my shoe is great. My drink has ice in it. There is a guy in Japan named Todd. There is a small coffee shop in Detroit that has 17 shares. There's 17,839 leaves on a tree in Maui. There's just so many different facts and truths that are, frankly, they're useless and they're not going to help you very much. And there are so many facts, so many truths that, you know, if you just have a list of them, it's 
you know, it's not going to do much to help you to understand the universe because who has time to go through that giant list of billions and billions of facts? No one does. And so if you want to do a good job of understanding the universe, you have to put these facts into a hierarchy. You have to figure out which facts are more important than other other facts and make a list. Of, OK, these are more valuable than these and then study those ones. And those ones will be more foundational. And the Bible, the Bible is the culmination of the most valuable facts and understanding the facts in the Bible is the most efficient way to understand the universe. And as we heard in that clip there, the Bible is fundamental. It's foundational to all the other works, all the other literary works in society. And if you don't understand the Bible, chances are you're not going to understand much else. And that's why we devote so much time here on the Dominic Enyart show to understanding the Bible. We spent the past two weeks talking about the bizarre issue of God and time. It's like, why? Why do, why do, why do we need to care about God and his relationship to time? Well, truth is important. And just like a child who's doing long division in school, if you make a mistake early on, if you make a mistake understanding the most basic, fundamental, foundational truths in society, those truths that are high up on your list as important truths, if you misunderstand those those truths, you are going to make huge mistakes along the way. And so we have to be very careful when we are handling the truth and handling, as Peterson said, the precondition for the manifestation of the truth. And so that brings us to the canon of the New Testament. And we are getting close to out of time, so we'll probably have to do another show on this. But that this brings us to the canon, and several factors need to be considered when we're addressing the formation of the New Testament canon. And as we discussed on our last canon shows, the canon, it refers to a permanent list of authoritative books recognized as scripture by scripture. And there is the historical critical school, which we talked about, which tries to undermine the Bible by telling us we have the wrong books in scripture and that we're missing a lot and that our books, we're really not sure what's supposed to be there and what's not, uh, which is ironic because the historical critical school, they do not believe that God exists and therefore they do not believe that the word of God exists, and they therefore they believe there is no such thing as a correct canon. So they say there is no correct canon, and by, by the way, these books should be in it, and by the way, these books should not. It's very similar to if you've seen, uh, we sell the resource here, uh, the Patterns of Evidence series on the Exodus out of Egypt. A lot of historians who are non-Christian historians, they say the Exodus never happened, and this is the time which it never happened. Look here, there's no proof that it happened at this time. But then the Christians, they say, well, it didn't happen at that time, but it happened at this time. And the uh, the secular historians say, no, it didn't happen at this time. It, ha- it happened at this time, and it did not happen at this time. And it, so it's just, it's bizarre. It doesn't make any sense. But so it is, it is sad that the historical critical school, they're seen as the authority on 
the subject of the canon of the Bible, which we should, as Christians should try and take that authority back because they don't even believe there is a canon of the Bible. Obviously, as believers, we believe that there is, of course, a correct canon. And, you know, regardless of if we have the canon of the Bible or not, we believe that it is out there in the world, right? Like Jesus' words, uh, they, they, the word of God, it does exist. And even if it's being ignored by us, it exists. Whereas the historical critical school believes it does not exist, we believe that a canon does exist. But, you know, we are about out of time. I was hoping to get more into the nitty gritty here. I guess we'll do that a little bit on tomorrow's show. If you want to catch that, tune back in tomorrow here on the Dominic Enyart Show. We air on KGov.com and on KLTT Radio weekdays 3 to 3.30. And I will be back tomorrow with more on the formation of the canon of the New Testament. A lot of interesting stuff to get to. I hope we can finish it uh, tomorrow, but we might have to extend it even to a third show. Hey, that's going to do it for me here today. This is Dominic Enyart reminding you to do right and risk the consequences.